Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. In this special show, we'll look back and forward as we consider the historical importance of Apollo 17 and the lessons that the Artemis program members are taking from NASA's lunar program that sent spacecraft to the moon nine times with six landings and explorations between December 1968 and December of 1972. In this program, we'll hear from Apollo 17 lead flight director Jerry Griffin, author and Apollo historian Andrew Chaikin, and Dee O'Hara, the astronaut's nurse who was so loved by the Apollo 17 crew that they took her with them on Apollo 17's Around the World Tour. We'll also have a very special conversation with the late Commander Gene Cernan's daughter, Tracy Cernan Woolley, talking about her dad, the last man to walk on the moon. But first, while putting the finishing touches on this program, NASA successfully launched and recovered Artemis I, its history-making uncrewed test in deep space of the Orion crew capsule launched by the Space Launch System. And there it is, high over the Pacific, America's new ticket to ride to the moon and beyond now in view. In a serendipitous coincidence, Artemis I, under parachutes that looked very much like those of the Apollo program, splashed down in the Pacific Ocean southwest of San Diego 50 years to the day from the moment that Apollo 17, NASA's final lunar exploration of the Apollo program, touched down on the moon. Splashdown. From Tranquility Base to Taurus Litro to the tranquil waters of the Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's journey to the moon comes to a close. Orion, back on Earth. We're joined by NASA's first female flight director, Holly Ridings, who is now helping to lead a key component of the Artemis program, an orbiting way station that will be aptly called Gateway. Holly, welcome to Blue Dot. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. I'd like to start out by knowing how a little girl from Amarillo, Texas, wound up at NASA. Yeah, so how did I end up at NASA? Um, so you correctly identified I, I am from Amarillo, uh, born and raised. My my family's still there. It's awesome. And, uh, you know, when I was in the sixth grade uh, is when the Challenger explosion happened. And so, you know, everyone has an origin story of how they ended up where they are. And so mine is, mine is that. Mine is watching Challenger, you know, this sort of terrible tragedy sitting in the cafeteria, you know, staring at one of those, you know, big boxy TVs, they rolled in on the TV stands. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't right in that instance. I thought, wow, I want to work for NASA, but it was more it Im- imprinted, it imprinted, right. And and I like to solve problems. And I'm a team person. And so it was more kind of, you know, what can what can you do to help? Well, uh, let's talk a bit about Artemis and Apollo. What kind of lessons do you take from that? How important are those Apollo missions to what you're doing now? When you think about Apollo, and back to your question of of how did I end up here, Apollo was such an amazing, positive experience, you know, for the entire world. And then, you know, my generation, many of us got into human spaceflight, you know, because of, of Challenger, which was a tragedy. So, you know, when you consider the lessons of Apollo, you know, the, the biggest one is is to... Uh, have Artemis and to make it successful and to set that, you know, positive example for the world so that, you know, everyone has this amazing experience in terms of science and technology and teamwork and, and global, global capability. So, you know, 
I think from a lessons learned standpoint, you can start there, right? Paula was amazing. They got it done with the technology they had available, but you can track that all the way down to the dust on their spacesuits and, you know, where they landed on the surface of the moon and, you know, the EVA they did on Apollo 17, the spacewalk they did on Apollo 17 on the way home, a deep space, you know, spacewalk, one of only a few. And so we, we talked to them, you know, all of the time and, you know, discuss detailed lessons and discuss also, you know, the philosophy of, of why we're here doing this. Gateway. And I don't think a lot of people are really familiar with that aspect of Artemis. They just have heard, you know, oh, we're going back to the moon. Okay. Explain what the importance of Gateway is. So Gateway, right? International Space Station around the moon. Uh, We have partners, uh, Canadian Space Agency, Japanese Space Agency, European Space Agency, as well as as commercial uh, entities that are working with us. And so what is the value of Gateway? It'll be the first piece of our permanent presence around the moon. We talk about lunar permanence is the words, the two words that I like to use. So Gateway will be in a near rectilinear halo orbit um, at the moon and the elements uh, will be assembled uh, out in, in that orbit over multiple years, the first two pieces are power propulsion element and a, a habitation module, pressurized module actually will get assembled on the ground and will and we'll fly out together. Um, but that'll be the first part of our Artemis enterprise, right? Uh, first part of the lunar permanence. And so international cooperation, it'll be a destination for crew where they could stay initially up to 30 days. Uh, science, It'll be how we access uh, the surface after the first initial landing and then look forward to Mars, right? It's so one of the great things about having an orbiting space station is you can start to think ahead to Mars. You know, people talk about Mars and the moon and Mars is a lot farther than the moon. You know, you're talking millions, millions of kilometers, you know, versus somewhere in the the 300 to 350,000 kilometers. And so it'll be really important to establish that so we can look forward to Mars. Yeah, the moon's only a couple days away. Whereas when you're talking about Mars, it's it's months of a, of a one-way trip. And, yeah, so and communication, right? Communication, 15 to 30 minutes to Mars and, yeah. you know, just a couple of minutes. So almost really like low Earth orbit out to the moon. So big, big differences. And we've got to go figure out, uh, you know, how to how to live and work in space in order to take that next big step. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Uh, one last quick question, though, for you. If there's a child listening to this who will be hopefully experiencing Artemis the way I experienced Apollo as a child, tell them, what do you most enjoy about your work? What did you love about being a flight controller and director? Well, the first thing, so my son is 11, so I can, I can think about the, uh, this aspect pretty well. You know, it, it's, it's solving problems, right? So every child likes to, like, they like to fix things and build things and understand things and create things. And so, you know, think about we are creating the future, right? A future that actually they can maybe envision even easier than we can, because to them, the world is an interconnected place, right? And we do have amazing technology that will help us move forward and we can put all these pieces together. And so to me, step one, just the creativity of of solving a, a big, complicated problem with a, a big global team. 
And so if they can focus on creativity and keep it right, because sometimes when you're young, you are very creative. And then as you go along, you, you forget a bit. So if, if they're listening to this, you know, keep your creativity and your excitement for solving problems and learn how to work as a team. You know, this, this is a challenge, right? This is a challenge to me personally and to those of us at NASA and around the world in human spaceflight. But it's also a challenge to the generation coming after us, right? So, you know, Harrison Schmidt talked about, you know, their limb, their lunar, their lunar module was challenger, right? And he said, I think the next generation ought to accept this as a challenge. Let's see them leave footprints like these. And so that's what we need to do. Excellent. Well, Holly, with somebody like you involved, I have every confidence that it's going to be a success. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. We are going to do our absolute best, right? We're privileged to be in a in a position where we represent, you know, the, the United States and, and the global human spaceflight community. So we're going to give it everything we've got, and we're really excited about it. Thanks to Holly Ridings, one of the key program directors for the Artemis program. Now let's turn our attention back to Apollo 17. I'm joined by longtime friend of the program, Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon. To get his take on Apollo 17 and NASA's current Artemis program, named for Apollo's sister in Greek mythology. Andy Chaikin, a renowned figure in the space history community now, was just a wide-eyed teenager when Apollo 17 launched. I was uh, 16 when Apollo 17 launched. I was at the launch. I, I had actually written to my congressman and gotten a VIP pass. I heard about that from another space friend and uh, met him there. Well, I must say, of all the launches, to, to if you were to pick one launch, that was the most spectacular of all. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. It was, that's why I called that section of the Apollo 17 chapter, Sunrise at Midnight. Because, you know, it's the only part of the of the book that I could write from my own experience. It was the color of a sunrise. It was this amazing, beautiful golden yellow orange as it lifted off and the and the whole area was just lit up by it. But but yeah, I uh, I'm 66 now and um, 50 years is a long time, but I'm glad that um, at last. I can look forward to seeing humans back on the moon, and I'm, I'm incredibly gratified to be playing some small part in it by trans trying to transmit the lessons of Apollo to the folks who are doing Artemis, and it's so hard. I mean, let me tell you a quick little story that I heard once from Max Fugier, and and many of the folks listening may know that name. He was the the, the chief design engineer, yeah. He designed the Mercury capsule, based the basic shape of the Mercury capsule, um, which was then, of course, used on Gemini and the Apollo command module. He was, in some ways, the father of the space shuttle. And, you know, a few years after Apollo 17, Max was walking with his former boss, Bob Gilruth, who was the center director in Houston for all of the Apollo years, uh, except, well, the last couple of years, it was Chris Kraft. So by the time of Apollo 17, I think Kraft had already taken over. Anyway, they were, and, and Gilruth was the spiritual father of the human spaceflight program in this country. You know, Gilruth was the guy creating the culture, the success culture of human spaceflight. And, and he was a worrier. He worried every time somebody, one of his boys, quote unquote, 
got on top of a rocket, you know, and uh, all the way through to Splashdown. And he and Max were walking along the beach at Galveston Bay in Texas. And there was a moon in the sky. And they just stood on the beach looking up at this beautiful moon. And Gilruth turned to Faget and he said, you know, Max, someday people are going to try to go back to the moon and they're going to find out how hard it really was. And, and it's only in the last few years as I've been working to capture the, the, the elements of success that got Apollo to the moon that I've really come to understand what that quote meant. And I think what it means is that so much of it was not written down. It was in the heads of the people who did it. It, it kind of became war stories and um, in some cases was never put down in any form. But much of it was captured in, in some ways, oral histories, a series of reports called the Apollo Experience Reports. But, you know, ultimately, there's stuff that they learned the hard way that people today will have to rediscover. But it is that hard. It is that unforgiving. And so that's one of the things I keep in the front of my mind all the time as I as I do my work on success and failure in spaceflight, and as I talk to the Artemis folks. What I'd really like you to do now is, uh, and, and this is difficult, I'm asking you to do something very hard. Can you put Apollo, the entire Apollo program, you know, now as we look back 50 years after the last flight, can you put it into historical perspective for us? What, what does Apollo really mean now that you, for you personally, as you look back on it 50 years ago? Well, to history, Apollo represents humanity's first step away from its home planet. So it's, it's a milestone that's not just on the level of a nation, but of, on the level of the human species. It really is. I can't believe that I was lucky enough to see it happen, and especially to see it happen when I was growing up, um, you know, the first lunar mission of Apollo, Apollo 8, happened when I was in junior high school. And um, the last one, which we're celebrating today, Apollo 17, when I was in high school, and of course I was glued to the TV for every single one of them, and it was the central experience of my, of my growing up and still powers me today. I mean, before we, we began today, I was looking at my own book and, and looking at the chapter that I wrote on Apollo 17. And I, and I wrote it with a, a real desire to give the flavor of this grand adventure coming to a close and how, how bittersweet it really was, um, how much nostalgia had already begun to set in knowing that this was coming to an end. And I was amazed at how much emotion it brought up in me to read about Apollo 17, granted my own words, but still, that's one of the jobs of an author is to, to dial up the emotions that, that bring an event to life. And, you know, for me, it's about the incredibly compressed age of lunar exploration that President Kennedy inaugurated in 1961, but really didn't begin to happen in earnest until December of 1968, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's and it just it just goes from basically the the exploration part from December of 1968 to December of 1972. That's not a very long span of time. It's a a, a blink of an eye in the broader sweep of history, and yet here we are all these years later. And we have not yet gone back. We are in preparation to go back, which I'm very happy about. But Apollo will always be special for being the first time and and for how it felt. I, I hope before I'm gone, I can find a way to put down on paper or video or something what it felt like to witness this and to be immersed in it and to be completely electrified by it. Um, I really want to leave that as, as part of what I can give to, to f- folks who come after me. It's like you got to glimpse this greater reality of what human beings can be and, and do. Um, and you got to see it in the context of not only the historical significance, but the significance of what we discovered. And, and, and by the way, I have to say, for me personally, what we discovered about ourselves is just as compelling as what we discovered about the moon and about the earth and, and the solar system. Because Apollo was a phenomenal demonstration of how you do hard things. President Kennedy said it best. We do these things, going to the moon and the other things that we want to do, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. And he understood at some fundamental level that it's good for societies to stretch beyond their limits. So Apollo, and this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years, is I've been putting down on paper and teaching at NASA how we really did Apollo from the standpoint of human behavior, because the human piece of the system is just as important as the technology and how we did the engineering. You can't do the engineering without the right mindset that to bring to the job. But Apollo just unfolded in this incredible way. I even love the fact that the TV is not high def. I love it. I love looking at those kind of you know, fuzzy pictures from Apollo 11, the ghostliness of those pictures from the first Apollo 11 moonwalk, from the only Apollo 11 moonwalk. And then as you get further through Apollo, the pictures get better and better as the technology improves. And on Apollo 17, they it wasn't commercial quality, but it's pretty darn good. And you can even see at one point, Gene is dusting the rover TV camera, which was remotely controlled by mission control. And he raises his gold visor so he can see the lens better as he's using this little brush to clean it off of lunar dust. And you see him talking inside his space helmet for just a second. And it's the human inside the spacesuit. And it, it's just all of that wrapped up together. I mean, I, you know, how many hours do we have? I could talk about this <laughs> for a very long time. I know. I wish we could. One of my favorite moments is at the very end of the last moonwalk when Gene is about to head back up the ladder for the last time. And there was a sign on the front leg of the lunar module, the Challenger, that somebody had put there and it said, Godspeed the crew of Apollo 17. And Gene 
looks around and 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 says, I, I dedicate my last steps of Apollo 17 to all those who made it possible. And then he reads the sign again, Godspeed, the crew of Apollo 17. And it was almost like a, you know, when I talked to him about it, he said it was a public prayer. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Luttrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope. Let's take a short break, but before we do, here are the Apollo 17 astronauts on their way to the moon 50 years ago as they take one of the most famous pictures of all time, the full Earth image known as the Blue Marble, with the swirling clouds and clearly visible continent of Africa, has been reproduced countless times. Here are the astronauts. Commander Gene Cernan, Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Jack Schmidt, and Ron Evans talking about what they see while taking the famous photos. You can even hear their cameras clicking as they discuss the view. I know we're not the first uh, to discover this, but uh, we'd like to confirm from the crew of America that the world is round. Roger, that's a good data point. And we're back with our look at Apollo 17 50 years ago. Next up, we have a very special visit with Tracy Cernan Woolley. Tracy's father, Gene Cernan, was Apollo 17's commander, one of NASA's most accomplished and outgoing astronauts. Gene Cernan was the last man to leave footprints on the moon, a direct and very symmetric connection to his good friend, Neil Armstrong, who made the first, the famous One Small Step, three years before on Apollo 11. Tracy joins us to talk about her late father, who passed away in 2017. Tracy, welcome to Blue Dot. Oh, thank you, Dave. Glad to be here. It's amazing to think it's been five years since we lost your father, and uh, I so wish he could be here for the Apollo 17 50th anniversary. My first question for you is, what were your earliest memories where you kind of realized that your dad was an astronaut and doing something kind of unusual compared to other kids' dads? Well, you know, dad flew the first time when I was three on Gemini 9 and six on Apollo 10 and nine on um, Apollo 17. So we all grew up, kind of all the third group was kind of all real huddled together there in Nassau Bay, most of them. And, um, to be honest with you, you know, it was like dad, when dad went to the moon, it was kind of like he just went on another business trip. Um, if my dad wasn't doing something with the space program, you know, Amy Bean's dad was or the Collins was. So we were all kind of went to school together. And so it, we lived in kind of a little bubble. And if where kids were either their dads were either astronauts or they were definitely somehow involved in the program. So I I think uh, looking back, I mean, you know, really not until I got older and was in high school and moved away and my dad was out that, you know, you kind of knew it was something a little bit more special. I mean, you always knew it was special, but you, 
you were out of that bubble to um, to kind of realize, wow, there are only 12 men that have done this. Yeah. And when you look back at this, especially Apollo 17, mm-hmm. which was in December of 1972, you were nine years old, as you said, and you were on the Today Show. Uh, I think, was it with Jim Hartz that you were with was it with Jim? It was with Jim Hartz, yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you remember about that experience, because that was pretty amazing. That was pretty amazing. Um, it's pretty neat that they asked me to, to to come up there and chat with them. I had met him before. Um, they were kind of friends, and Dad had talked to him, you know, often. And so when they asked me to come do that when Dad was doing his spacewalk, it was very special and um, especially for a nine year old and, and talking to him and watching um, dad, you know, on the moon, walking on the moon while we were, were visiting. And uh, Jim was really great about just kind of asking things you would ask a um, nine year old. And of course I gave answers that probably a nine year old would give like when he asked, um, you know, what if dad found uh, water on the moon? I said, you know, well, then he's probably in the wrong spot, you know, because <laughs> there's no water on the moon <laughs> there, you know, and the other other things that he uh, asked me is what dad was going to bring me, which dad told me he was going to bring me a moonbeam. Um, and, you know, and when he questioned me, a moonbeam, he's really going to, I said, that's what he told me he was going to do, you know, promise me that, you know, as an innocent nine-year-old, not knowing that that was not a tangible item. Um, so, you know, it was really, um, it was a, it was a fun experience and looking back on it and, you know, of course, afterwards, I always remember when we were through, I looked at my mom and I, she said, oh, you did so good. I said, Yes. Do you think you can bring the star a sprite? <laughs> oh my! You you were so really great. A little ham. It's a little ham. Oh gosh, there, I guess. that's so yeah. hilarious. <laughs> were you at the at the launch for Apollo seventeen on December seventh, nineteen seventy two? Yeah. Tell I us sure about was. that because that was the most spectacular of all the Apollo launches in my book because it was the only night launch. Yes, it was amazing. It was. We were sitting there. Um, and the family uh, launch vis- place where we sat um, was right in front of this big lake. And that's what was so beautiful, watching the Saturn V sit there all lit up, all bright as can be. Of course, there was a delay on it. So we kept sitting there waiting. And then when it finally went off, the Saturn V was such a majestic um, machine and rocket where it just sits there and lights up. So if you imagine that looking at it with the black sky behind it and all this bellowing orange fire going out to the sides and it just sitting there and when it started to take off in that lake all the fish and all the and everything kind of jumped out of the lake from the the noise and the rumbling and then um we just watched it slowly and majestically go go up into the sky and, you know, you could see it forever because it was so easy to see in the dark and watch the glow as it went up. But it was a a truly spectacular event. As a child, were you ever worried about your father, you know, because it was very dangerous that, you know, that he may not come back? Did that ever really occur to you as as a kid? 
No, it didn't. Um, you know, he was, you know, my dad was very confident in going. He was confident in the people, confident in the rocket, confident in the people that were guiding him there, confident in his, his abilities and his crew members' abilities. I think he always knew there's always could be something that happened, but he didn't ever go thinking that there wasn't. And I think my mom, he portrayed that to my mom as well. So she didn't portray a lot of fear. But as a child, I just really, you know, he started when I was so young. So I just didn't, it was, it was a, a routine thing for us. I think that's one of my favorite things about getting to know you and and your fellow Apollo kids like Amy Bean is that, uh, you know, for you growing up, that was normal life and you lived normal family lives. And it was just, you know, just your your dad's had these extraordinary jobs, but life at home was pretty normal. Yes, yes. And we have to credit our moms for that because I think the the moms really kept it um, kept it normal. We, um, I mean, I went to school every morning. I came home. We had dinner every night at six o'clock or whatever time. And if dad was in town, he was there for dinner. If he wasn't, we still did it. Dad was one that when he came home, he spent time with us. He made the time he was there very important. And one of my favorite stories about that relationship is when your dad came back from Apollo 10 which was one of the, the, the countdown dress rehearsal for Apollo 11, where they went out to the moon, got within 50,000 feet of the surface. And it was just an amazing mission that your dad was on. So it was, it was groundbreaking mm-hmm. and paved the way for Apollo 11 to be the first to land. But when he got back, he had sat down and had this nice talk with you about, you know, now I'm back from the moon and, you know, trying to convey all that to your your child's mind. And I loved your response to him was like, Great. When are we going camping? That's right. That was right. He thought he was going to really impress me of how far he was going to be and what he was going to do. And look up at that full moon. Look, that's where you're, that's where daddy's going to be. And then I sat there and listened with all this intent. And then my comment was, okay, daddy, that sounds great. When are we going camping? <laughs> yeah. Cause that's what was really important to you. You wanted to go camping with dad. That's right. That's right. So, um, well, and of course, you were very special to your to your father, as as all daughters are to dads. I can tell you, but he did something so special on the moon, which was to carve your initials into the to the lunar regolith there, and they're, you know they're still there now and will be for many many years into the future. How did you learn about that? Did he tell you about it afterwards? When did when did it occur to you that you know your initials are on the moon? Well, before he went, he um, told us because they did the maps out, and there's a lot of craters named on the moon. They were able to name certain craters. And so there's craters named after me and and my mom and I think his parents and stuff like that. But then afterwards, you know, Dad never thought about that. I mean, I think that he, he told me it was, and he did tell me after the fact, but he said it was just kind of an afterthought. You know, he was... Um, setting up the camera on the on the rover to take a picture because they hadn't had any color pictures of the liftoff yet. And so they were setting that up and he said he just looked down and reached down right there by the tire and said, I'm gonna write her initials, wrote her initials in there and then went on up, took his last steps, did did his 
famous words and and climbed up. But um, you know, I when you look back on it, you think how special that is because you know that he was even though he was there on this intense mission and a specific purpose and constantly had stuff on his mind and what to do, you can still think that, you know, I was still in the back of his mind and so was my mom and and what was important to him was still at home and he was still thinking about us. Well, and he did a lot uh, through the years after the after his uh, work in the space program as an astronaut, as a goodwill ambassador for the space program and NASA, and uh, passionate about you know we need to you know continue exploring space. Uh, could you talk a little bit about you know how important that was to him because it really seemed to drive him in his later years where he he did a lot. He did do a lot. He was. Um very passionate about the fact that we should continue space travel and continue space exploration. So many things that were developed with the space program, um, you know, Velcro and sciences and so much stuff that, that came about as a result of the space program, you know, it just shows how much you learn. And, and he used to always say, you know, human race are, um, their, their desire is to explore. And so we can't stop that. I mean, you know, you're, you, you want to continue that. I mean, I know daddy never wanted to be the last man on the moon. He used to always say, I don't want to be the tail on the dog. You know, he said, I, um, he, and I think he would be excited. I think he wished he would see this next, next phase. I think he'd be excited about Artemis. I know that he had differences in the, aspect of commercial space because he felt like it just needed to be some kind of head organizing, you know, a NASA figure or something that kind of organized it, not a free for all. But uh, I think he would be excited about what's happened with SpaceX and, and Blue Origin after now that he saw it, and at least that there's a lot more interest in that we're actually using it to send astronauts up uh, into space. Um, but I wish you would be here to see when the next person walks on the moon. Yeah. Oh, me too. Thank you for, for sharing your memories of your father with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dave. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Tracy Cernan Woolley. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from the astronaut nurse, Dee O'Hara, and the lead flight director for the mission, Jerry Griffin. I'm Dave Schlum, and you are listening to a Blue Dot special, Apollo 17 at 50. And we're back, and thanks for listening to this special edition of Blue Dot as we look back at NASA's final and one of the greatest missions to the moon, Apollo 17. Our next guest, and one of our favorite people, is the nurse to the astronauts from NASA's golden era of exploration, Dee O'Hara. She joins us now from her home in California's Bay Area to talk about her very special connection to Apollo 17 and its commander, Gene Cernan. Dee, welcome back to Blue Dot. Thank you very much. It's nice to be back. 
And we're talking about the final uh, of the lunar missions, Apollo 17. Tell us a bit about your relationship with the commander, uh, Gene Cernan. Well, it was it was a very warm, friendly, and loving relationship with Gene. I just adored him. He was friendly and open. In fact, he was that way with everyone. I think most everybody that, that knew or met Gene uh, liked him very much. Whenever I would see him at at a, an astronaut event, you know, there was always hugs and talks, and it, it was just a, a very warm, friendly relationship. Gene was just an amazing guy, but one of the most interesting things that you told me in one of our previous conversations is you got invited on their Around the World tour, didn't you? Yes, I did, and it's all thanks to Gene Cernan. How did that happen? Tell, tell me how you found out about that. Well, I wished I, I knew, but apparently the crew, uh, Ron and, and Gene and Jack, were had been contacted, obviously, about Around the World mission, because since Apollo 11, all of the crews were sent on a, on a goodwill mission, if you will. And I was at the Cape. No, Gene was at the Cape, and I was in, in Houston. And he called and said, how would you like to go around the world with us? And I said, yeah, right. And then he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he said, we've been making plans. And he said, I insisted with headquarters that you be allowed to come with us. And with that, I said... Gene, do you realize that you're going to be out in the middle of nowhere with just me and a doctor's bag? And you better think about that. And he said, nope, I, we're not going to have a doctor. You're going to go with the doctor, and we want you to go. So, of course, what else could I say? And, of course, I was thrilled to death. And But it was all because uh, Gene had insisted that um, I accompany them on that trip. Well, and very appropriate that was, too. Okay, well, let's talk about um, the mission in, in context with your life, because you began with the, basically with the space program, right, at the beginning with the, the Mercury 7 astronauts. And then right. in 1961, right near the beginning, President Kennedy sets the goal to uh, go to the moon before the decade is out and return safely to Earth. And sets that goal, and and then you are a, a part of it. What was it like for you on Apollo seventeen? You know, do you remember what the feelings were like, and or even now about like this is the end of that era of exploration the, of Kennedy's goal. At the time, I I wasn't that cognizant of of it being quote the last mission, but then there were times when I thought, gosh, I can't believe this is almost over with, and I hoped it would not be because. It was such an exciting and great time for, for everyone, but I certainly didn't dwell on it being the last mission, and I, I'm not sure why I didn't, but I just did not. And and now, 50 years later, what do you, what do you what what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are, where the hell did the time go? 50 years? Are you kidding me? I mean, it just it just seems unreal, and it's it, and it's kind of sad that we. We did not return. I know the Artemis program is is going uh, forward, and there's a lot of anticipation about that. I I don't have the enthusiasm for it that I once did or when I had for Apollo, but 
it's just it's kind of sad that this much time has passed and we have not fulfilled uh, by we haven't gone back. Well, perhaps for uh, somebody working on Artemis, uh, perhaps uh, somebody in the medical aspect of that, any any advice that you would give them, you know, from your experiences? What, what do you have to say to the Artemis people? Well, uh, hang in there and enjoy every single day. If you're a part of the Artemis uh, program from the beginning, or regardless of what uh, what your portion of duties are or what part you are playing, just enjoy every single day of it because it too will will fade off into history. But it's just uh, such a unique opportunity to, number one, work, work with astronauts, and number two, to work with a wonderful group of engineers and flight directors and people like that. I mean, they really... Uh, it brings an excitement, I think, uh, to your life that uh, you don't get anywhere else. Thanks again to Dee O'Hara, NASA's first astronaut nurse. Finally, we're joined by my friend and personal hero, Jerry Griffin. Jerry was the lead flight director for Apollo 17. Jerry, welcome back. Always nice to be with Blue Dot, Dave. Glad to be back. You've commented to me before when, when we were talking about Apollo 17 that you were at this point, you were very comfortable with the hardware, with the systems, and it was it was that chance to really push Apollo to its limits. Right. It was more why we were why are we going there? We we're going there to explore the moon. And that's what we finally got to. I, I think if we had flown 18, 19, and 20, we would have taken another step up the ladder. Uh, and even learn more quicker. Now we've got to go back. So <laughs> to do it to do it some more and do it in harder places like South Pole. So anyway, it was a, a nice sequence and that last the last mission was a delight. It was fun. And, and the, this was the longest stay yet on the moon. And I believe it was also the heaviest the launch vehicle the Saturn V ever was. So this was, you know, since it was the last flight to the moon, it really was all in and all in for science. Yes. And, and the interesting thing, too, Dave, is that not only was it a scientific exploration while they were there that was enhanced, every flight, including 15, 16, and 17, each one, the, the latest one carried more samples back to the moon, brought more samples back from the moon than the one before it. And so the one that holds the record is Apollo 17. Most pounds of samples uh, returned, uh, longest stay time uh, on the surface. And so, like I say, 17 was a great ending. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself 50 years ago, uh, what would you tell yourself to think from your perspective now uh, to tell Jerry Griffin, the flight director at that time, could he have imagined that 50 years later we would be producing these programs and talking about this, but have not quite yet returned to the moon? Yeah, I, I have thought a lot about that. Well, I think it's a shame, but it's a reality and I know why and it's money and it's politics and it's all kinds of things that, that it's taken us so long to, to go back, the thing that that is really kind of interesting, I think, is that most of us in Apollo 
were extremely young for the responsibility we had. That's true with not just flight directors, flight controllers. It's true with engineering people and at, at multiple centers. It's true at, with the, the astronauts tended to be a little bit older than we were, but not much, year two, three. And that's because they had all been off doing something else for a long time before they got to the program. And uh, at the time, I can remember, and this probably has something to do with youth, I, I knew we were doing something important, but I didn't realize it would have the historical impact that, that it's had. For one thing, we were too busy and we were too young. We were a little bit, we weren't cocky, but we had our scarf over our necks and neck and we had a little bit of, of a swagger. We can do this. We can do this. Even when we failed, we kind of got up and said, we got to figure it out and do it again and do it right. So I missed that historical piece until several years later. And then I realized that people were really interested. And then I realized now, 50 years after Apollo 17, people are still interested. And I get nine and 10 year olds and 12 year olds that uh, even today that know a lot about Apollo. And they ask me questions that are some of the toughest I get. Uh, or from kids because they've read up on something and they kind of get get a gotcha on me. Can you think of a question like that you've been asked by a kid that you can give as an example? Well, yeah, I I got asked by a young kid, where was that, not too long ago. And he said, you, you did a mid-course correction coming back to Earth on Apollo 13 to keep from, and he used the term, he was probably 12, may have been 13. Uh, to keep you from skipping out of the atmosphere because we were shallowing out. He said, how many feet per second did you have to, have to put in to uh, take care of that? Wow. And I said, wow. I'm sorry. I said, I think it was something like two or three feet a second, but I don't remember. And uh, he said, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> oh, 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 that's great. Well, hopefully he'll so, wind up working for NASA sometime a few years from now. Oh, yeah, yeah. What advice would you give to this next generation of Artemis flight controllers and directors who are going to attempt to return to the moon? Um, what, what advice do you give them? Well, as a matter of fact, I have given them some they solicited it. They've asked, asked me several times how we did things or what we did or what was the overall scheme of how we approached something. And those are kind of easy to answer. But what I've always taken the, the opportunity to do is explain to them, when you send somebody, when you perform translunar injection, TLI, we called it, you're on your way to the moon, you're leaving the sphere of influence of Earth and headed for the sphere of influence of the moon. They're on their way to another place in our solar system. And it's different. It has a different feel to it. It's a little bit like when you're flying in an airplane, you fly over water finally, and you've got a long stretch of water in front of you. You start listening to the engine really carefully. And that, did, was that a sputter? Was that a, <laughs> you know, did I hear a pop? Uh, what was that? And and it's a little like that when you do TLI, because for one thing, you know, is you got a heck of heck to have a maneuver to get back, and um, 
when you're at the moon, uh, you know, you're not, it's not like the space station, which you can get down in a matter of hours if you have a problem. You're three to four days, uh, depending on where the moon is, to get home. So it's just got a, it's got a different feel to it, Dave. It, it feels, it feels like you're really exploring, and that's what it's all about. I talk to people all the time who don't really have a feeling for, you know, where they think, oh, they're in outer space, they're so far away. Uh, when they're in low Earth orbit, it, it's really no difference as, as difficult as that is, and you're traveling at 17,500 miles an hour, and it's dangerous and it's challenging. The distance between, you know, me and the astronauts flying over me in the space station is, is no different from me in San Francisco, which is just about three hours away driving time. Yeah. It's not that yeah. far. But when you talk about the moon, that is a whole scale of magnitude different where it is very, very far away. That's truly deep space. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it takes a little bit of luck, takes a little bit of guidance from somewhere, but it takes a lot of skill uh, all stirred together to pull one of these missions off and, and do it successfully. And, um, they often talk about Artemis standing on the shoulders of Apollo. I think the technology is so much better today. They're going to have a lot more tools. But one of the things that, that I think is really important is the, the fact that we did it. I think the fact that if they are standing on our shoulders, we've at least proven the fact that it can be done. And I think Apollo legacy will help them more that way than anyway. Well, Apollo was those are some those are some damn fine, powerful shoulders. Yep, I agree. Jerry, thanks so much for sharing your memories of Apollo seventeen, and the Apollo program with us. It's always a joy to have you. Well, it's always fun talking to Blue Dot. I really uh, appreciate what you uh, have uh, chronicled in this whole fifty uh, anniversary series and. Uh, uh, I, I really uh, applaud that. Thanks to Apollo Flight Director Jerry Griffin. On a personal note, when you get to meet your heroes, it can go many ways. I never would have imagined when I was a kid that as an adult in my 60s, I would be not only interviewing, but regularly texting an Apollo Flight Director to talk about everything from our families to football. He's definitely one of my most treasured friends and someone who's worked tirelessly to share the stories of Apollo to people around the world. And thanks to you for listening to our special Apollo at 50 programs. Thanks to all our guests, NASA Artemis Gateway Deputy Program Manager, Holly Ridings, Tracy Cernan Woolley, Andrew Chaikin, Dee O'Hara, and Jerry Griffin. Special thanks to Andy Chaikin, who helped me when I was first starting my career as a space history journalist and has never failed to be a kind and generous friend. Blue Dot's Apollo at 50 series is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at blue.nspr. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Schloem, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>